This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, welcome to the Memorial Day edition of the Talk of Fame Network, or week one of Game of Thrones AD. I guess HBO are in the finale, as in the end of the series last weekend. And people, I guess, are still talking about it. Not sure what I missed or why, guys, but I'm not sure I care. But what I do know is apparently this ended kind of like the Rams-Saints playoff game. I mean, people are really ticked off and they're not going to take it anymore. And Ron, my only question is, why are they so angry? Uh, well, it beats me as I was never a Game of Thrones addict, but it seems to me that everyone you run to with these days is angry about something, except me, because I'm happy to have a throne. In fact, blessed to have three in my home, which is two more than I had as a young boy. <laughs> well, Goose is angry because he's not in the studio today. He's out in the field. And Goose Man, how do you think the NFL would satisfy all those angry viewers of Game of Thrones if it were left up to mm, Park Avenue? I think the NFL would huddle, authorize more replays, <laughs> but not change the end result of the Game of Thrones finale. Like it or not, what's done is done. <laughs> I like it. Well, I heard someone say the other day uh, there's already a sequel in the works, or I guess that's, that's the prequel in the works, but uh, I'll be honest with you, I don't really care because I'm going to miss that one too. But I'll tell you what you should not miss, and that's our lineup today. We have Dick Ebersol, former head of NBC Sports with us. Dick was just named the winner of the 2019 Roselle Radio TV Award by the Pro Football Hall of Fame. We also have former MSNBC military analyst, Colonel Ken Allard, here to talk, not about the Army, U.S. Army, but playing football as a kid in suburban Baltimore for Gino Marchetti and Alan Amici. Honest. Be pretty good. Uh, but that's not all. We have former NFL GM Charlie Cassidy, now with the NFL Network. He's in the house. He's going to give us a lowdown on what's going on with the Jets. And, Ron, after what happened last week, I'm not sure the Jets know what's going on with the Jets. Uh, well, the Jets don't know what's going on with their Jets, and Boeing doesn't know what's going on with their Jets. But they both know this. They can't get off the tarmac. <laughs> well, Goose, uh, there's some loose talk about Peyton Manning. Yes, Peyton Manning coming in as GM. If you were offering him some advice, what would you tell him? Well, first off, I wouldn't call it loose talk. I'd, talk it, I'd call it dream talk. You know, Peyton's been cultivating his image for decades. He's a guy who does all the right things. Taking the Jets job, not the right thing. He knows that. <laughs> he'll, I think one day he'll run a franchise, but it'll be the right franchise. This is not the right franchise. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's just as simple as this. Just say no, Peyton. I'm not sure, but I know Charlie Castle is sure, and we'll catch up with him later in the show, so don't go anywhere. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Interesting note that our Rick Goslin just passed Ron and me, uh, and that's that Tony Romo. Yes, that Tony Romo. He wants a contract extension. That's um, going to make him the highest paid sports analyst ever, right, Gooseman? Um... Apparently, it's in the $10 million range, and it's to extend his contract beyond 2019. So, I guess I'll start with you, Goose. What do you think? I mean, I know Tony Romo wasn't a Hall of Fame quarterback, but I'll be honest with you. I think he's at least on track to be a Hall of Fame announcer. If you were CBS, what would you do? Well, they're going to pay him. That's the nature of television. You know, pay what's hot and attempt to stay hot yourself. But I do think the farther Romo gets removed from the game, the less Nostradamus he'll be. Yeah, there'll be changes in the game that you only see sitting in the court player. The game he's watching today isn't the game he'll be watching five years from now, and that'll make his predictions more difficult. Right now, though, uh, that's his attraction is the color commentary, seeing things before they happen. 
Yeah, you know, the thing that always strikes me about this is no one has ever turned off a game because of the announcers, nor have they turned on one, except back in the day when Dandy Don and Howard Cosell were abusing each other on Monday Night Football. <laughs> so, Dan DeRue, back to you! <laughs> I love that guy. Um, of course, Ron, the danger is, if you don't do it, you lose him to another network, and I'll guarantee you Fox would be right there to pay him what he wants. I guess the question you've got to ask is, is he really worth it? And, and I'll be honest, after listening to him the past two years, calling plays before they happen, you know, watching the Patriots, eh, Gronkowski, he's going to get the ball. And yep, yeah, he got the ball. I'd say, absolutely, yeah, he is worth every penny, or, or I guess every million. Well, you know, two things about that uh, uh, baffle me. The first is, why couldn't he do that crap when he was a quarterback for the Cowboys instead <laughs> throwing it to the other team? Uh, but the other thing is, uh, uh, look, I, I'm not so sure that he, uh, what his value is. Uh, Look, he's certainly entertaining and he's enthusiastic, but as Goose points out, uh, you know, not only is it an issue of information over time, it's also that your shtick, any shtick, wears out after a while. You know, John Madden was big, then he was a cliche. Cosell was big, and then he was a big mouth. Phil Simms was refreshing, and then the networks hit the refresh button on him. Chris Collinsworth was Romo before Romo, now he's a homer. So it goes in TV. You know, if they want to pay $10 million, fine, it's their money. But these guys all have a shelf life, and as I said, who turned off an NFL game saying, not those announcers? Look, last season we listened to Jason Witten and Booger McFarland for God's sake, <laughs> babbling away. So uh, I think it really matters who's talking. <laughs> hey, Ron, just to put things I, in perspective, I always turn off the Red Sox announcers. I always <laughs> mute them when I'm watching the Red Sox. Yeah, for sure. No. Yeah, I, I agree with Ron. The Game of Thrones finale drew 17.8 million. There are 20 NFL games that drew larger audiences. They're not tuning in to hear Tony Romo. They're tuned in to watch NFL football. Yeah, well, uh, Goose, I, I, I heard Ron talk about John Madden. Uh, I looked it up. Madden made $8 million a year. Of course, that was a long time ago. Tory Aikman, I think, apparently makes $7.5 million a year. Romo currently makes $4 million a year. So at least I think, based on those numbers... A healthy pay hike is probably warranted, don't you? Well, he was overpaid as a quarterback, underpaid as a broadcaster. It all even out. Gotta love the Gooseman. Kicking Tony Romo even when he's out of the huddle. I love it. <laughs> good way to go, well, Gooseman. But, you know, when he, look, when he signed the contract, what did it say? Did it say $10 million? Was he crying about four million then when he couldn't find a job or a team? Now he has a couple halfway decent years and he wants ten million. I'd say, tell you what, we'll sign you to an extension, but you don't get the ten million until you live up to the original deal. Or you can go back to try to qualify for the U.S. Open again. Anyway, good luck to you, Ron. Give us the name of your agent, because, guys, we could use the help. I don't think that's the guy we're looking for, but it is the guy we want now. And that's our Ron Borges, with his Borges of Bogus, where he takes aim at, I don't know, Ron, what's going to be today? Please tell me it's not Julian Edelman's karaoke performance. <laughs> Couldn't care less what he's doing. But I'll tell you what, with the recent unhappy conclusion of the NBA draft lottery, at least in the opinion of consensus number one pick, Zion Williamson, who looked like as if he thought he'd been slotted to go to the Alcatraz Pelicans instead of the New Orleans Pelicans when those ping-pong balls stopped bouncing, there's now been growing debate in some football circles that the NFL should consider going to a similar lottery route. Well, I have always felt that it is unfair that the best football players in the world had to go to the NFL's worst teams for competitive balance purposes, but the best graduate from Harvard Law School was not equally compelled to work for the public defender's office in Oklahoma. Uh, the idea of going to a lottery system seems bogus to me. 
First off, when Commissioner Burt Bell first came up with the draft idea in 1936, of course he wasn't commissioner then, but it was his idea, it was to benefit the NFL's least competitive teams. The idea was that the draft ran in reverse order of the standings unless the trade was made. It was an effort to avoid the curse of baseball, which has long been ruled by teams like the Dodgers, Yankees, and Red Sox because they have the deepest pockets. It's like watching Premier League soccer as the season's over at the first weekend. This effort to create uh, parity has been a foundation of the, of the NFL's success. Yet, some are now arguing a move to a lottery system would create more interest in the draft than a potential made-for-TV bonanza event. To me, that idea is bogus. First off, the last thing the NFL needs is another made-for-TV bonanza. Everything they do is a TV bonanza. Uh, as it is, the draft has become a three-day miniseries doing big ratings while still serving the original purpose of helping the worst teams improve. Second, no matter how you set up a lottery that either leads to tanking or to a less successful solution uh, for bad teams. While it's true, forcing the Johnsons and the Bidwells to sell their franchises might be another way to get some parity back into play, they ain't selling. Which brings us back to the draft. One nitwit proposed a lottery with the 20 non-playoff teams each getting one ping-pong ball, arguing this is a way to prevent teams from tanking to put themselves in a position to get the first pick. Well, first off, the Jets, for example, aren't run effectively enough to conduct a successful tanking operation. They just stink. Stinking is not tanking, although it may look the same. But in 2009 draft, had that plan been in effect, the 11-5 and Patriots would have been one of those 20 teams. The same Patriot team that had gone 18-1 in 2007 and reached the Super Bowl in 2011 and would go 13-3 that season. Sounds like a system that would create a parity of parity. So, while the NFL may need to alter a few things to improve its product, they don't need ping-pong balls to decide who gets the first pick. They could just assume most years it will be the Jets or the Cardinals. Ron, I can see your bogus claim. You live in New England. The Patriots are never in the lottery. Would you change your tune if you lived in Arizona, Detroit, or Cincinnati where the lottery would come into play every year? <laughs> I wouldn't because my, I know what they would do. They'd clone Jamarcus Russell every year. I mean, it would be just another heartbreak. <laughs> Who the hell needs that? Bad enough they're losing games. Now i got to watch them blow the pick year after year. after. Uh, the Cincinnati Bengals, didn't they take that guy named Achilles Heel or whatever his name was at quarterback? <laughs> I mean, Achilles Smith. <laughs> they thought they were taking Keely Smith. Hey, uh, Ron, you say the last thing the NFL needs is another made-for-TV bonanza, right? That's what I right. heard. Right. But, but isn't that precisely what it wants? I mean, they've been shopping the draft for years, and I think probably going to shop the combine in the future because they're all about made-for-TV bonanzas that generate revenue streams. Well, yeah, you're right. But in this case, I don't know how much how much uh, uh, revenue stream you can drive from something that takes about 15 minutes. You know, I mean, a bunch of balls bounce around, and you pull one out, and it says Jets lose again. Uh, you know, so I, I just think it's it's more important that they have this artificial way to at least give these uh, loser teams a chance to uh, come somewhere close to being uh, uh, a parody wouldn't be the right word, but at least able to compete to some extent. I mean, left to their own devices. My goodness. So I, you know, I just think it's a bad idea. Uh, there's a lot of things they have to fix in the NFL, but the draft isn't one of them. Ron, let's say the Patriots are in the lottery one year. Who would you designate from the Patriots to go sit on the stage with the little Patriots placard? <laughs> <laughs> Who'd be your good luck charm? Who'd be your good luck charm? Would it be Jonathan Kraft? Yeah, Jonathan Kraft, because yeah, <laughs> Jonathan Kraft would be perfect. They'd turn the TV camera on, and the rest of the world would hate the Patriots even more than they just did. 
How is that possible? Yeah, I know, difficult, but he's he's the man to do it. <laughs> you know, when you said, I think it's just a stupid idea, that's why I think it's got a good chance of well, passing. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, that's the scary part. You're right. I mean, if you look at some of the other things they've done, you go, yeah. Sure, why not? You know, and 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 certainly, if you come to these guys with some sort of money proposal, yeah. they have a hard time saying no. I, I I just don't know that it could generate enough money uh, to make it uh, worth the other problems it's going to cause. My guess, Ron, they'll find out. Anyway, thanks. That was great. Now sit down, Ronnie. In fact, we're all going to sit down. And when we return, we'll hear from former GM Charlie Casserly and what's going on with those Jets. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, our first guest should be familiar to you as former Sam Charlie Cassidy, now with the NFL Network. And he's here to make sense, or at least try to make sense, what's going on in and around the NFL these days. And Charlie, first of all, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's always a pleasure, guys. Really appreciate you having me. Second, let's start with the New York Jets. I can't remember the last time a team fired a GM two weeks after a draft, and I know what Joe Namath said this week. He said the only thing that surprised him was the timing, the only thing. Is that the only thing that surprised you about the Mike McCagnan situation? No, I was surprised that uh, they let him go. But obviously, you're not, you're not uh, able to get you know what's going on inside the building. Uh, right. You know, I was in a situation in Houston, ran the whole offseason with new coach Gary Kubiak, ran the draft and left after it. So, I mean, it's not unprecedented uh, that you do the thing. Uh, I, I just think that the, the, the things that come out afterwards, just, uh, you know, nothing should be said. You, you, you remove a man from the job, you're moving a man from the job. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, there were, there were rumblings. Um, the head coach Gase had said things outside the building about right. Mike McCagnan. That's That shouldn't be called for. Uh, and I don't believe he didn't have anything to do with it. Uh, that, that that makes no sense to me. Um, the bottom line is, when McCagnan took over this team, um, your quarterback was Geno Smith. Your best two players on on offense were Nick Mangbolt and Shaw Ferguson, and they were hanging on. Your defense is built around Sheldon Richards and Muhammad Wilkinson. That's the mess that uh, was taken over. Uh, now you know you've got a quarterback which was made with a, a really a good trade a year ago. Uh, and you've got a nucleus on defense. Uh, you know, you've got both Williams, you've got uh, C.J. Mosley, you've got Jamal Adams, uh, just to name a few of the players. Um, Case has already come out and said he likes the receiving core. Herndon's an up-and-coming tight end. Uh, you got a couple of offensive linemen that are young guys that are talented. So, Plus you got your draft choices for next year. Uh, I mean, so you've got a nucleus there. And... Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what happens, who they hire, uh, and what goes forward with the franchise. But they had a lot of momentum, and the thing was headed in the right direction. Let me ask you this, Charlie. How do you view this job? I know you once interviewed there with the Jets, and not too long ago. But of the 32 GM jobs out there, where does this one rank? Well, let me just say this. From a, uh, from a talent point of view, 
on jobs that were open. When the job was open uh, five, four years ago, five years ago, there were six jobs open. It was sixth, and really it was about tenth out of six. Okay, <laughs> uh, it really was. It, 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 people didn't want the job. It wasn't a very good job at all. And uh, now the rate jobs open. Cleveland was better. Uh, but it really wasn't open. It was the best job that opened this year uh, because there's a nucleus of talent and you have a quarterback. When you go to rebuild the franchise, if you don't have a quarterback, you, you can spin your wheels for years. Okay? And and so the Jets got past that uh, now. And, you know, I, I think you're obviously going to have to uh, – now, again, now you've got a head coach in charge. Who um, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna, I'm not going to make any comments about him, um, but you do have an awkward situation going into it, and if you try to hire his friend, okay, who you think he can work with, that can backfire uh, as time goes on. So, uh, and the other thing about Gase, you're going to need a strong personality in that building with Greg Williams um, and Adam Gase. Because Gase is already running the thing. Um, and in Miami, he certainly fired a number of good players. So, you know, Jay Ajay went on and helped uh, uh, the, uh, uh, what do you call it? Eagles. Um, the Eagles. And you got uh, uh, and Sue. Uh, you got Jarvis Landry, uh, who they could have signed but chose not to. So and I know it was a lot of money, but Cleveland paid him. So, you know, that, that's going to be an interesting dynamic to deal with. Well, Charlie, you know, you're a much smarter guy than me, uh, but I'm sometimes mystified by uh, CEOs who own these teams. And Christopher Johnson came out and said he's the next GM has to be a, quote, strategic thinker, unquote. I actually thought the coaches had to be strategic thinkers, but uh, what does this mean? Does it mean anything? <laughs> and to be honest with you, I have no idea. Because uh, you'd have to really know what does he mean by that. And, and the bad thing is when you put that out, uh, that statement out there, uh, from a PR point of view, now every person, whoever gets hired is going to be, are you a strategic thinker? Are you a strategic thinker? Are you, well, what does that mean? I don't know. I mean, I thought, I thought a year ago they had a hell of a strategy to get a quarterback, but it took a trade to move up a month before the draft with three second round draft choices to get in a position to guarantee a quarterback. How more strategic than you want to be? Okay. I'm more strategic to gain cap room to have a lot of cap room this year. Uh, Got your roster of veterans who didn't help anybody else. Put yourself in a position to be uh, a major player in free agency. Sign some players that are you know good players. Granted, you paid them a lot of money. Well, they're going to come to New York on a discount. Okay, that's for sure. So uh, I, I'm, somehow I'm seeing strategic thinking, so I'm not sure what all that means. Well, Charlie, what, what do you make of the Peyton Manning rumors? I mean, do you buy what Reggie Wayne is selling, namely that Peyton Manning is not going to be a GM until he owns a team? First of all, I don't buy it from the sources that I have and the ones uh, at NFL Network. Uh, we don't see anything that shows that this this thing is evident. Okay, uh, so it's you know maybe somebody started a rumor. Who knows? Um, I still I think there's more qualified candidates available out there, and people who've uh, uh, worked in front offices uh, don't have to learn the mechanics of a front office and uh, uh, are highly qualified candidates. So, <laughs> Well, let's, let's uh, uh, get, get away from the, the Jets and go to Pittsburgh, where they uh, subtracted uh, two great players, or at least Pro Bowl players, Antonio Brown and uh, Le'Veon Bell. Uh, 
who some people said were now all pro distractions. Uh, some people have called it addition by subtraction. I don't quite figure that. Uh, but how do you look at the situation? Uh, where do you stand on the subject? And what do you make of of Roethlisberger now coming out and saying, oh, I was too critical of Antonio Brown. Uh, uh, is he trying to win the locker room back? Or what, what do you think is going on there? I can't uh, understand him making that statement. Uh, he, sure, he can make it now. That's fine. And maybe he's trying to uh, win over some favor. I mean, he won the offseason. He's there. They're not. Right. So, uh, uh, you know, I guess in, in, in life, it's no, there's nothing wrong with apologizing. And some people apologize a few years after the fact. That's okay. Uh, he apologized. Um, the bottom line is where are they as a football team? How are they going to play on the field? Um, they were able to move the ball without Le'Veon Bell. Uh, perhaps not as good. I think we can agree on that. But they did move the ball running the football last year. So I, I think they've got a, they've got a stable of running backs. I think that'll be okay in this situation. Not great, but okay. Um, you don't. They, they, you can't replace Antonio Brown. I mean, that one. You, you're going to have to somehow. Uh, it's going to hurt. Uh, because he was a he 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 had double cover him. You're not going to worry about double covering uh, Schuster and Julius Schuster. But uh, uh, Antonio Brown changed coverages. They don't have anybody that changes coverages, so they're not going to be as good in that area. I still think they can be good on offense, uh, but you are losing a great player. The key to them is being able to get that secondary um, uh, straightened out so they can uh, uh, compete there because they've got a solid team. Uh, you know, unfortunately, the way Cleveland's exploded here, that, that Cleveland's going to be hard to beat. Well, right. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting thing you bring up Cleveland because they, they are certainly the trendy pick of the moment. Yep. Um, I tend to sit in the back and, and uh, uh, you know, trained by uh, our friend Parcells, always I go by what I see. You know, and I still haven't seen it in, in Cleveland. They're better, no question, and uh but can they really do it when when uh, and can they do it with uh, uh, Beckham there now and a new coach? So why do you think they are ready to break out? Well, I'm just looking at you know how how they've gotten better, and you start thinking about you know when you look at their football team, um, you start to all well, you believe in Baker Mayfield, right? Well, you believe in Patrick Holmes, okay? I mean, I believe in Baker Mayfield. I saw it in college. I saw the transition at the senior ball, and I saw it last year. So I believe in Baker Mayfield. You got running backs, okay? Uh, you know, Chubb, Chubb's a heck of a back. Um, so, and, you know, somewhere in there, uh, you're going to get Kareem Hunt back. And Kareem Hunt, we know, is a hell of a back. So they can run the football. Um, Beckham changes coverages. He's a dynamic player. Um you maybe have something to prove. He changes the game. Um, Jarvis Landry is a proven slot receiver uh, that's productive. Uh, Callaway as a third, that's not all bad now. Um, the offensive line improved last year. Um, I think Corbett coming at guard, he's going to be fine. Robinson at tackle and Hubbard at tackle, that's, they're not as strong there. That's why Mayfield's mobility comes into play. But you've got runners, you've got a quarterback, and you've got receivers. And you got a, and you got a number one receiver, a legitimate top receiver. So offensively, they should put. Now again, you're talking about the head coach who coached half a season, but he hired a hell of a staff. Now Todd Monken should be a head coach in this league, the offensive coordinator. Steve Wilkes was a head coach in this league and was an excellent defensive coordinator. Mike Preeve was one of the best special teams coaches. So he checks that box. Now on defense, you know Miles Garrett, he, he got to double team him. 
Sheldon Richardson, if he's you know ready to play, he can be a force inside. Olivia Vernon, eh, we'll see what he's got left. Um, we know Denzel Ward at corner is uh, uh, a legitimate number one corner, so you know you, you got a shot there. Now, Greedy Williams, I'm not so sure about him, uh, but the point is uh, they got better. Uh, in a number of areas in the off season, and I'm looking at the division. Pittsburgh's a good, solid team, but are they invincible? No. Uh, and Baltimore, the defense is good. They'll miss Mosley, but at the end of the day, they'll be be damn good. Um, we don't know what that offense is going to look like, man. Yeah. The Chargers stopped them last year. Chargers shut down the, the option game, forced right. the quarterback to throw. He wasn't good enough. Right. Yeah. We have to find out about him. Yeah, that's the question I've got about Baltimore because I thought that he was exposed in that playoff game. Anyway, Charlie, we, we've got to run, but always, always okay. good to catch up with you. Thanks so much for the time. Thanks, Charlie. Sure, no problem. Sure, see you now. Goodbye. You got it. That was former GM Charlie Cassidy. Up next, it's 2019 Roselle Award winner Dick Ebersol. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, this is the third time in the past year that we've had Dick Ebersol on this program, and for good reason. First two times, he joined us to talk about Denver owner Pat Bolin going to the Hall of Fame. But now, well, now the former head of NBC Sports gets to talk about something a little closer to home, and that's Dick Ebersol going... <laughs> the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Yep, Dick was named this year's winner of the prestigious Pete Rozelle Radio TV Award. And Dick, first of all, I can't think of a more deserving recipient. I'm not sure why it took this long. And, and secondly, I can't think of a more appropriate occasion for you to go into Canton than at the same time as Pat Bowen. You couldn't be more right. As you know, uh, it was a pers- personal mission of mine the last two or three summers to call up the key voters for the Hall of Fame and retrace uh, who Pat Bowen really was. And in many cases, I think you could agree with this, I was able to tell you all things that you didn't know about his incredible career, not just as a, a once-in-a-lifetime kind of owner. I mean, he, he's never had a team that wasn't a winner. Uh, he won numerous Super Bowls. But more than that is the head of radio and television committee for a long time at the league. <clears throat> he, together to some degree with Jerry Jones, really changed forever the amount of money in the game. A, from uh, bringing Fox in uh, is a new person into the equation who certainly blew uh, the other networks, including ours, uh, away with the fact that the kind of money they were talking about was so far beyond anything we had paid up to that point and we're planning to pay. But uh, Pat was the guiding force through all of that. And I was on the on the tough side of it, getting the, you know, the kind of very Bolin look, uh, where he just those eyes would bore into you, and he would say, "Hey, this is what we need to have. We need to have it by tomorrow morning. <clears throat> and if we don't, we're going to move on." And in the initial stages of that, um, I was kind of shocked. I had not dealt with anybody like that before. But I have to say that within. Oh, two or three weeks of that part of our relationship, I came to really respect him, knew that he was fair. When he gave me a deadline, when he'd say, if you get this uh, by tomorrow or the next day, we will give this to you. And in that particular case, it was another four years with the NFL uh, back in the mid-90s when Fox was coming in and, and ultimately CBS went out. 
And uh, he was totally truthful about what he said on his word and Commissioner Tagliabue's word. Uh, that was good enough for me. Uh, CBS tried to come back after initially refusing to put the money on the table, tried to say, well, we'll pay even more. And they'd say, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. We gave our word. We shook hands. And that's pretty rare in the world, period. Forget about the NFL. It's pretty pretty bizarre in the world where, you're, where your word truly is your bond. And that's what Bowen was all about as a man. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, uh, Dick, you have received, obviously, tons of awards over the years, including an Emmy for Lifetime Achievement. Uh, so where does this sort of rank, and how meaningful is it to you? I'd have to say um, it's it's probably at the very top of the list. I've gotten all kinds of awards from the Olympic Committee, the International Olympic Committee, and various national uh, sports but this one's very near the top because in those years, starting in the mid-90s, um, I got really close to Pat. And when I had a vision for changing the course of primetime football in the NFL, as the head of the TV committee, fortunately for me, he was in the beginning the only person who got it. The idea of moving off of Monday night, where they had never been the number one show, to Sunday night, to a lot of owners and others, it was considered, no, 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 Sunday night, they've seen too much football already in the course of a day. And I was adamant, if we can work together every year to create a schedule of games that, if it isn't the game of the week, it's a traditional rivalry game like uh, the Packers and the Bears, or uh, Dallas and Washington, or New York and Philadelphia. And uh, he made sure that the league lived up to that standard. And that coupled with the fact that I very much wanted flex and was willing to pay for it. You know, flex covers the last six weeks of the season. And what I think a lot of fans don't realize, in the final years of Monday Night Football, the final six years, in the final six weeks of the season, so a totality of 36 games, they never had a single game between two winning teams because the schedule in those days was locked in in uh, April. No changes, no way to make changes. And with Bowen and Commissioner Tagliabue in particular, they paved the way not only for the owners to accept it, but more importantly, to lay it out in such a manner that you didn't have the coaches all going nuts that a game site could be changed on one week's notice. It's obviously borne great fruit. Sunday Night Football has been a top 10 show since the week it went on the air in September of 06. That had never happened with any sports series, let alone any NFL series. But then, in the years that followed that, it became the number one television show. No sports show had ever been the number one television show uh, for a season. Um, and it and it did that in a way that, you know, we had gotten used to when we were kids. Something like Bonanza was always number one, laughing, <laughs> sure. all those things. And here was football, the third game of the day. But I think because of the scheduling, I think because of the production team, Fred Gadelli in particular, who last night won, the, I think, his 11th Emmy for producing um, Sunday Night Football as the best live sports series on television. And the announcers, originally Michaels and uh, uh, Madden, and then and Chris, uh, I'd always made sure to have Chris on our bench, an incredibly well-paid bench, so that when John finally decided he wanted to pack it in, we had him. 
And those people have really made this thing go all this time, along with Roger for almost most of the years, because he and Howard Katz were the only people who at the league dealt with the schedule. There was no ownership involvement. There was no involvement by uh, other networks. Everything was, this is not to say the other networks didn't weigh in with what they wanted, but we were in a position to lay out what we'd really like, and we were never, uh, I would say, filled with greed when we did it, we understood that we would probably have to take six to eight games a year, but we made sure they were always traditional rivalries, as I alluded to earlier. So when you were looking at your television viewing choices on a Sunday at night, this was something that was uh, quite often the number one game of the weekend, whether it was because of the records of the team or whether it was because it was a rip-snorting rivalry where you knew the competition would be particularly fierce. So I'd have to say that Pat is the initial person, and in those days, Roger was just under uh, Paul, and Steve Bornstein was there, and they carried the ball as well. But it was a combination of Pat and the commissioner. I remember... I had a personal tragedy, a plane crash, which killed my youngest son. Sure. Uh, as this whole process was just really starting to heat up to to give uh, uh, an avenue to a Sunday night football. And I was not able to communicate for more than a month. My body was so broken up and everything. And finally, after about six weeks, one night, there was a phone by my bed, and I just picked it up and I called Pat. And after we got done crying, literally crying over the phone, the two of us, over Teddy's loss, my son's loss, he said, I have one piece of good news for you. And I said, what's that? He said, I have one other sure vote other than mine. And I said, who's that? And he said, Paul, meaning the commissioner. And if you can call him in the next day or two and tell him that you're in, GE that owned NBC at the time is in, and that you'll pay this price that you've been talking about with us for the better part of a couple of months, which was $600 million, I think we can move on to a deal. So Pat basically was the campaigner for this project and not only getting the league office's full support, but more importantly than that, key owners, probably most of all Jerry, who had been his accomplice in bringing Fox, Fox into football about, oh, eight or nine years before. Um, to say that uh, I, I love and love uh, the Pat Bowen that was, and I love the Pat Bowen who's still alive today, is an understatement because uh, uh, sports and television has been most of my life. And uh, to have somebody like that on the other side, who initially I was scared to death of, he, <laughs> Pat's look in your eye when he wasn't quite sure whether or not you were full of it or not was like one of the coldest looks in the whole world. Later on, that, that at least in our relationship, that melted, and uh, we became very, very close personally until he was struck by Alzheimer's. And I was planning... Let me just finish this. Sure. The family, after uh, Clark, you and the others started the process that got Pat into the hall, the family knew how long I had fought individually for this thing. And from that moment on, I'm, I'm pretty close with most of them, but they made it very clear they wanted me to go to Canton with them as part of their family. So when I got that phone call from Dave Baker... Uh, about two weeks ago, um, it just wiped me off. I, I wiped me off my feet. I, I, I hoped that something like this would happen one day, but 
just sort of to be wandering around the streets of New York on my way to meet with my old partner with whom I'd started Saturday Night Live in the mid-'70s, Lauren Michaels. Uh, it took me by such great surprise that it, it actually brought tears to my eyes. Well, you, you mentioned something a couple minutes ago. Uh, I didn't really intend on asking about this, but it, it piqued my interest when you talked about a well-paid bench. Um, as, I, as I'm sure you're aware, you know, Tony Rome was announced. Uh, he wants $10 million bucks, uh, you know, to continue on his, his broadcasting career, even though he has a contract with time to go. Uh, I'm sure you've been in these situations before where this guy wants this or that guy wants that. Uh, what do you do as an executive when you're in that sort of situation? Because uh, Clark and I both sort of feel that no one's ever shut off a good football game because the, we didn't like the announcers. We just watched the game. <laughs> so what's the yeah, value but, there, really? You know? Well, particularly in prime time, which is where Sunday Night Football has sat now all these years, it's a different kind of football cast, telecast. It's it's really about storytelling. It's not about so much analysis. I used to listen to an announcer 30 or 40 years ago. He was doing the early AFL games, Al DeRogatis. Sure. And he drove me up a wall the same way Gruden did all those years he was at ESPN. They were playing to a audience that they determined was the most important. I used to say that they were much more interested in talking to coaches than they were in an interesting manner laying the game out for the fans. So I think that to have had John Madden, um, which who I, by the way, had gotten to be very close to, not because of football, but because I hired him in the mid-'80s uh, to be a host of Saturday Night Live, and that gave birth to a wonderful friendship. And he really enjoyed that experience and always said to me, if you ever get back into sports, I'd like to work for you. I certainly wasn't thinking that way at the time, but he, too, was a uh, man of his word. But these guys are much more than just the ones who are great are so much more than an ex-jock or an ex-coach. Uh, Romo certainly is another example of it. Collinsworth has been for years, and Madden was unsurpassed. And so Madden's salary was, at the time, $8 million a year. Blew everybody's socks off. But I, I contend that he gave more credibility to that package and, and gave Murdoch and the Fox guys a hell of a head start. And I do, And I also feel that Madden was the kind of guy that... He would make you stay tuned to a mediocre game a bit longer because of how entertaining and rich his storytelling was. Couldn't agree with him more, Dick. Um, we've got to run, unfortunately, but I want to thank you so much for the time again, and congratulations again on an award that, frankly, as I said, is long overdue. And we will see you in August in Canton, Dick, and looking forward to it. That was Dick Ebersol, the 2019 Roselle Award winner. Up next is the Two Minute Drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We're just about at the end of our first hour. So, Robert, you know what that means. That's the two-minute warning. Yes, sir, it's a two-minute drill. Gooseman, you have it this week, so let's get started. Zeke Elliott was detained by police in Las Vegas over the weekend. Should mamas let their babies grow up to be cowboys? Absolutely, Gooseman. But they shouldn't let their cowboys grow into babies. <laughs> yes, they should. Just don't let them be Buckeyes. Speaking <laughs> of Buckeyes, Ted Ginn has offered $10,000 anyone who can beat him in a foot race. Texas high school sprinter Matthew Bowling has accepted the challenge, and we've all seen his highlights on Twitter. Tell me, does anyone really want to mess with Matthew Bowling? 
two words. Usain Bolt. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Uh, I would say uh, nobody, if they have $10,000 on the line, and much embarrassment if they get beaten by an 18-year-old. Ted Ginn, do not do this. Redskins lost linebacker Ruben Foster on the third play of OTAs with a torn knee ligament. Remind me again why everyone is criticizing Le'Veon Bell for skipping these non-contact drills. Easy, Goose, because he skipped an entire season before that. <laughs> Actually, no, it's because they have no idea how dangerous non-contact drills can be. Malcolm Jenkins is the latest high-profile player to skip OTAs, so what is it? A desire to rest his 31-year-old legs or a reluctance by the Eagles to pay his 31-year-old legs? Well, like George Young once said, Goose, when they say it's not about the money, it's always about the money. Actually, I think organized team activities for a political organizer like Malcolm are known as voluntary workouts, a.k.a. no thank you. Buccaneers say they have mutually agreed to part ways with their former Pro Bowl defensive tackle, Gerard McCoy. Just how mutual do you think it was? One side opened the door, the other side walked out of it. It's about as mutual as how most journalists now leave the newspaper business. <laughs> Josh Allen, Josh Groban, or Josh Reddick? Josh McCown. Guaranteed, somewhere he's going to start them getting in the season. You Josh and me, Goose? Josh McDaniel, the greatest coach in Josh McDaniel's <laughs> mind to ever call a play. That's the end of the <laughs> Who's the next GM of the Jets? Rocket J. Squirrel. <laughs> I would say whoever Adam Gase says it's going to be. <laughs> That's the end of our first hour, but don't go away. Plenty more where this came from, including a U.S. Army general who once played football for Gino Marchetti and Alan Amici. You're listening to Talk Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to hour number two of the Talk of Fame Network, or as we call it around here, week five of Jeopardy, being held hostage by James Holzhauer. Man, this guy is amazing. I mean, he not only never loses, he laps the field night after night after night. Plus, I think, Ron, he's closing in on like $2 million in winning. Is there anyone in NFL history you could compare him to, Ron? Anyone? One. Winning, the winningest quarterback in the NFL history, Otto Graham. None is even close. Ten for ten in championship game appearances. Everyone who Wonder faced how, Otto was in jeopardy. Wonder how he was <laughs> in jeopardy. I'd like to find out. Well, this is also Memorial Day weekend, as we said. And around here, it means a lot more than parades, picnics, the Indy 500, and, believe it or not, James Holzhauer. We like to take time every year at this time, which we have, uh, to recognize some of pro football's military figures, some of whom you might recognize and some of whom you might not. For instance, um, late Pat Tillman is an individual most people think of when the NFL and military mentioned. We've talked about him several times on the show. Uh, friends of the show, Roger Staubach, Rocky Blyer, I have two more guys. Uh, both, of course, were involved in the Vietnam War, but there are plenty of others, many of whom that we remember here in Goose. You want to start first? A one, several, I don't care. Sure, I'll start with Al Bozes, an all-decade tackle for the New York Giants in the 40s. He went off to fight in World War II in 1944. In 1945, he was killed in France scouting enemy lines. He played only three years in the NFL, but the Giants retired jersey number 32 in his honor. That's respectful. Roses as both a football player and a patriot. Yeah, they retired number 32 and kept it retired. Buffalo Bills, Ron, and eh, not so much. Ron, <laughs> do you have someone, or, or more than one, you'd like to mention, a uh, former player who was in the military? 
Yeah, yeah, I have someone, and I also have a, a situation which has always interested me. Pro football uh, in America just lost a legitimate hero in Gino Marchetti, uh, but not for the great way that he rushed passers in the NFL, but for being an 18-year-old machine gunner at the Battle of the Bulge and other battles in the European theater during World War II. Uh, he was, of course, not alone. The league suffered uh, such a player shortage during the war uh, that several teams had to be combined. And in 1943, the then-Brooklyn Dodgers NFL franchise had only seven players from his 42 roster available when it opened training camp. Try and contrast that with what happened in, uh, when the Vietnam War came along. Big difference. Right. right. Well, in any way, to all those who served and played, we salute you. We really do. Now into the rest of the show. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Before we go farther, just wondering, guys, Wednesday, May 22nd, is the 39th anniversary of a popular arcade game that was huge. I mean, huge, gigantic, monstrous in the 1980s. Do you have any idea what that game is? I guess Pong, which I found to be mesmerizingly boring. What? Good answer. Pong was the greatest game ever invented, Gooseman. It was the only one I was fast enough to keep up with. Pong was great. (laughs) Boom. Boom. I thought he said Pong. Pong. I thought he said like Pong, like beer Pong. No. And that's not the answer. So, Ron, you want to take a shot at this? Ooh. Did they have a Game of Thrones game back then? Probably not. No, no. That's before Game of Thrones. No? You're no. waving the white flag here? Well, okay. Tilto, well. I was a Tilto Rammer pinball guy, you know? <laughs> yeah, those, actually, those are good and still are. It's the 39th anniversary, guys, of Pac-Man. Oh, love that game. Yeah, Pac-Man debuted on this date in 1980, and where else, of course, Japan. I'm sure you guys played it. Most people did then. I played it. That was pretty cool. Well, Goose, what do you remember most about it? What I remember most is they brought up Mrs. Pac-Man, which was a better version of Pac-Man. <laughs> they did. Mrs. Pac-Man was my all-time favorite video game. If I saved all the quarters, I threw at the machines to play that game. I could be retired and not having to do this radio show each week. <laughs> I've never heard of Mrs. Pac-Man. Oh, yeah, she was hot, Mrs. Pac-Man. Oh. Had pink shoes. Ron, the only guy I would say she was hot. <laughs> so, hey, Ron, what in your mind, or maybe who, most closely approximates Pac-Man in today's NFL? Um, Eli Manning. He's still slowly trying to gobble things up, but he doesn't always move his feet fast enough anymore to avoid getting eaten alive, which is what's going to happen this year. Good one. Goose, can you top that? Yeah, I'd say Indy linebacker Darius Leonard, who led the NFL in tackles, and seems to gobble up everything in his past. Well, I can't come up with anything, guys. I'm just going to say, happy birthday, Pac-Man. Or, as they say in Japan, Tanjo he omideto. Can you translate that, Ron? Tanjo he omideto. Yeah, 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 I can translate for it. Pass the sake. I'm not sure how to say state your case in Japanese, so I'll just say that that's the signal for this week's, well, state your case, without Rick Austin making the Hall of Fame case for a former Seattle Seahawks defensive back, <laughs> who was also a great interceptor that he wrote about this week. This was a soft interceptions? No, quiet interceptions you wrote about on our website, Talk of Fame Network. And no, it's not Cam Chancellor. Uh-uh. No, it's not. So, Gooseman, who is it? 
Well, gentlemen, the Paul Football Hall of Fame selected Seattle safety Kenny Easley in its class of 2018 and former University of Michigan cornerback Ty Law in its class of 2019. Now the Hall needs to consider another Seattle defensive back and another University of Michigan corner. Dave Brown has waited long enough for such consideration. He was an All-America safety at Michigan who became a first-round draft pick by the Pittsburgh Steelers in 1975. He picked up a Super Bowl ring in his rookie season with the Steelers, then was selected by the Seattle Seahawks in the expansion draft in 1976. He moved into the starting lineup at safety that season and led the team in both tackles with 111 and interceptions with four. The Seahawks then moved Brown to cornerback in 1977, and he stayed there for the next 13 seasons, intercepting 58 passes. Only three pure cornerbacks intercepted more passes in NFL history. Dick Knight Train Lane was 68, Kenny Riley was 65, and Dick LeBeau was 62. Emma Thomas also intercepted 58 passes to the corner, tying Brown. Lane, LeBeau, and Thomas all have busts in Canton. Add his four interceptions at safety, and Brown's 62 career interceptions tie him with LeBeau for 10th on the all-time list. Seven of the nine players ahead of Brown on that list have already been enshrined in Canton. Brown's been eligible for the Hall for 25 years now, but has never once been a finalist, so his career has never been discussed and debated. Brown and Riley combined for 127 career interceptions, and they had to be the quietest 127 interceptions in NFL history. Both played 15 seasons, but Riley never went to a Pro Bowl, and Brown went to just one. Like Brown, Riley has never been a Hall of Fame finalist. Now both are in the senior pool where everyone is a long shot for Canton. Dave Brown, who passed away of a heart attack in 2006 at the age of 52, deserves better. He was a two-time All-American in Michigan, has been enshrined in the College Football Hall of Fame. So he arrived in the NFL as a elite defender and remained at that level for the next 15 seasons. He served as Seattle's defensive captain from 83 to 86 before being traded to the Packers in 1987. He intercepted a career-high eight passes in 1984 on his way to his only Pro Bowl. He also had four six-interception seasons, including 1989 when he led the Packers in his final NFL season at the age of 36. He holds Seattle's franchise records for interceptions with 50, return yards of 643, and touchdowns with five. A physical player at both safety and corner, Brown forced six fumbles in 1983 and 10 in his career. He also recovered 11 fumbles, giving him 73 career takeaways. The Hall of Fame should be about productivity, not reputation. Few cornerbacks in NFL history were more productive than Brown. He deserves his time in that room. So I don't know how you can have 62 quiet interceptions, but uh, uh, what I wonder, Gooseman, is is Dave Brown forgotten in part at least because uh, he played, as they used to say, in southern Alaska and for much of his career was never seen on TV uh, and is a spot in Canton, like all real estate, based on location, 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 or production, production, production? Well, I, I agree. Um with the Seattle thing, they, they weren't uh, a popular national TV figure, but I also think the other factors, championships, championships, championships. He started for 14 seasons on teams that didn't win a title. His one ring came when he was chasing kicks on special teams for the Steelers. Mel Blount was the cornerback of record of those Pittsburgh champions, not Dave Brown. And if you don't win, as we found out in this selection process, you don't get any rewards. Package uh, a lack of success uh, in, in, in February. And location of Seattle, and I think you've got the reason. Gooseman, since you mentioned Ken Riley, I'll make this simple. You have one vote. Ken Riley or Dave Brown? I go with Ken Riley. He's got more picks. 
Uh, strictly for that reason, I, I think uh, he's second all-time among pure corners. The second all-time leading rushers in the Hall of Fame, the second all-time leading sackers in the Hall of Fame, the second all-time leading passers in the Hall of Fame. If you're number two in any category, you got a bust in Canton. Ken Raleigh doesn't, and he's never even been discussed. Shame. Well, you know, I can see perhaps uh, declining to vote for Dave Brown for the Hall of Fame. Uh, difficult, though, that may be to fathom in some ways. Uh, but how, for 25 years, is the decision made not to ever even discuss the guy? How much of that is the fault of the voter representing Seattle at the time, whoever that was, and the other voters uh, for not at least nominating the guy? Because my guess is uh, he was probably not on even the preliminary list uh, for 25 years. So how much of uh, his situation is perhaps a result of his own uh, Seattle vote, voting representative not pushing harder for Dave Brown. Yeah, I, I, I tell all the Cowboys people down here, you, uh, until you're in the room, you're not a Hall of Fame candidate. That's the only time we discuss players. You know, if, if we're not talking about you, you're not a candidate. You know, I've been on that committee each of the last four decades, and I've never seen his name on the list, on a preliminary list. You know, I think he needed an advocate but he obviously never had one. And I think that's that's one of the reasons. Uh, you know, once you start sliding, you get forgotten quick. You know, we talk about all the first ballot guys going in. You know, when you start talking, focusing on the first ballot guys, you forget guys that paid, played four, five, six, sixteen, twenty-six years ago. And that that I think the case with Dave Brown, he was uh, out of sight, out of on, out of mind from the early going. So, Gooseman, you went to Michigan State, right? Yes, sir. How difficult was this for you to push for a Michigan alum? Not at all. You know me, guys, unbiased, fair. And by the way, did you see what Draymond Green did in the NCAA or NBA uh, semi or Western Conference Finals? I did. Yeah, I where did. did he go to school, by the way? Yeah, where did he go to school? Hillsborough Community I College? I wish we had an NBA site. I could worry about Draymond Green as much as I write about <laughs> Dave Brown. Goose, why can't I get you to push for that other Michigan alum, Tom Brady? Yeah. Who? He's not eligible yet, Clark. Yeah. He's not eligible yet. To be an alum. I had to get in a Tom Brady mention this week. Anyway, to, Goose, to nice be an job, alum, so, he has know. to graduate. <laughs> <laughs> Goose, I'll be honest with you. I think Cam Chancellor mentioned him earlier. He may have a better chance than Dave Brown at this point. Anyway, enjoyed it. That was good. We're going to break. When we return, we'll talk about why David Carr won't rank Joe Montana in his top ten quarterbacks. <laughs> we don't make them up, people. That's the next. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, an interesting note from the Pro Football Hall of Fame last week came across our desk, and that's that the Black College Football Hall of Fame's first ever classic is coming to Tom Benson Stadium on the Hall of Fame's grounds in Canton, Ohio. And it's going to be there on Labor Day weekend. And it's going to involve Alabama A&M University against Morehouse College. I think Morehouse, guys, isn't that the same place where that billionaire last week just promised to pay the student loans yeah. the entire graduating class yeah. of 2019? Holy smokes. Wow, it's like $40 million. Wow. Maybe we can get him pay the bills here talking to him now. What do you think? <laughs> that would be no. good. <laughs> Wouldn't need $40 million either. Yeah. 
Well, I know what you guys are saying, and, and our listeners are thinking, what's a classic? Well, I know what Coke classic is, but what's a, what's a black college football Hall of Fame classic? Good question. We ask the people at the Hall, and they tell us that it's more than just a game. Of course it's more than just a game. It's a weekend of events, and this one's going to include a battle of the bands, tailgate parties, social events, concerts, I think Morris Day and Time from Purple Rain are going to be there. And, oh, yeah, there's a football game, too. And I'll be honest with you, Ron, <laughs> sounds pretty appealing. Sounds pretty good. Yeah, no, I think it's a good idea, it's, it, and it's a great way to raise uh, the profile of the Black College Football Hall of Fame, which moved uh, a year or two ago from Atlanta, where they were sort of unknown, uh, to the Hall at Canton. And uh, my hope is that as the Hall itself expands, it'll, hope, it'll make room for a more permanent display for the black colleges, uh, which have produced so many, uh, you know, so much great NFL talent over the years, uh, and really been an important part of the history of the game because uh, uh, of all those great players that come out of those historically black colleges. Ron, I'd pay just to see the Battle of the Bands, especially yeah. the Florida A&M marching rattlers are competing. <laughs> you are right. You <laughs> yeah, are right. Plus the cheerleaders. Woo-hoo. Yeah, all right. Well, it's going to be good. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, also, one other note of interest I want to mention here, and that's not involving the Hall or the Black College Football Hall of Fame, but Saints wide receiver Ted Ginn, as Goose mentioned in the first uh, two-minute drill earlier in this program, he recently said on a podcast that he would challenge anyone in a 40 for $10,000. And okay, so I guess that's not that unusual. I mean, we had Chris Johnson on this program about a month ago, remember? He was talking about racing a cheetah in a 100. I mean, he and Devin Hester race the cheetah. I think Devin Hester actually won. Well, anyway, apparently Ted Ginn has his challenger, and that would be 18-year-old high school phenom Matthew Bowling, a.k.a. White Lightning. And I don't know if you've seen this kid up close and personal, Goose, but obviously he's in your state. He just set a national record for the 100. And I think he's about to collect 10K. Well, I've seen Bowling, and my money is on him. He is the fastest sprinter in American high school history. And for that reason, I don't expect to ever see this match race. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I, I can't wait to see it. I'll be honest with you. And though I'll be honest, Ron, <laughs> I think I'd rather see Chris Johnson and the cheetah. Well, yeah, especially what Johnson told us about that cheetah jumping the fence, man. That was, whoa. <laughs> that was good. Yeah. Oh, my God. That make you run fast. That would make me the fastest uh, uh, guy in America for a minute. Uh, but I like, you know, I kind of like this idea. You know, I remember back when a high school kid named uh, Houston McTeer was setting right. the sprinting world on fire in the 70s. Oh, yeah. and, you know, and that poor kid was the unluckiest guy in the in the world. I think he missed the 70s. Uh, 76 Olympics that he had qualified uh, for because of an Achilles injury. And who replaced him? Lamb Jones, who finished sixth, figures. Uh, then he made the 80 team. And what did the United States do? Boycott the games. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, plus, you, you're a track guy. Remember this guy? This kid is the first fast white guy since the dodo bird. Who was the last fast white guy? Armin Harry from Germany, who was the first to oh, ever yeah. run 10 flat in 100 meters. Right. Remember Valerie Bortsoff? Uh, he was a great sprinter. From yeah. Great sprinter. Yeah. Um, well, you mentioned unlikely, Ron. I want to move on to the week's most unlikely event, or in the unlikeliest event of all. And no, it didn't involve the New York Jets. Surprise, surprise. But this one is all about former quarterback David Carr. We've talked about this earlier. Brother of Oakland's Derek Carr, an NFL network analyst now. At least I think he is for the time being. I don't know about next week. But last week, he failed to include Joe Montana. Yeah. Joe Montana. Say it ain't so, Joe. But he failed to include him among his top ten quarterbacks of all time. Now, 
goes, this is going to need some explaining. I mean, it really is. <laughs> what do you attribute this to? Uh, David Carr trying to make a name for himself by honestly making some ridiculously stupid statement, or David Carr maybe taking one too many sacks in the pocket? Well, I attribute it to David Carr trying to judge quarterbacks by their inflated stats of this era. Sure, guys like Brady, Manning, Breeze, Fire, Rogers all pass for more yards, more touchdowns in Montana. There's more to quarterbacking than completing passes. It's about winning games. The man won four Super Bowls and didn't throw an interception in any of them. He didn't make any mistakes that put his team in jeopardy of losing a Super Bowl. That's what I want in a quarterback. Joe Montana, by the way, he's on my list. <laughs> he's on my list, too, at, at, at near the top. Um, and, you know, it's funny. I mentioned this to my wife. She goes, David Carr, isn't he from California? I said, yeah. She goes, what's up with that? I mean, I know, Joe Montana, are you kidding me? Um, but uh, I, I just, you know, I, I don't get him. I, I listened to the interview, and, Ron, I heard what he said about Bill Walsh being a genius and Joe Montana being part of Walsh's system. Yeah, okay, all right. But I can't think of one reason, not one, that you wouldn't have Montana among your you know, top three or four best-ever quarterbacks. And that's being just generous. I mean, maybe it's one or two. But as Goose said, four for four in Super Bowls, 11 TDs, no interceptions. That's a slam dunk. Well, you would think so. But, you know, when you've been sacked 267 times, you get a little addled, you know, especially after dark. So maybe that was part of it. But, uh, you know, but, but you know, beyond that, uh, look, there's always been uh, some who argued or tried to argue that Joe Montana was a system quarterback. Uh, and my report retort to them has always been the same because I was out in the West Coast uh, for a good part of that. System quarterback? Yeah. Steve DeBerg was in the same system when he was running the West Coast uh, offense. The only difference was when DeBerg ran it, people said, what the hell are they doing out there? So I would say that uh, Joe, <laughs> Joe Montana made the system, not the system making Joe Montana. Yeah, I agree with you. And also, he was saying something about, look at the defenses they play. They were terrible. They're horrible. It's like seven on seven football. Well, that's because of the excellence of Joe Montana running that system. I mean, he was incomparable. Talk to anyone in the Bay Area. This guy was extraordinary. But you don't have to talk to them. Just had to watch him. Just had to watch him. Um, I don't know. I just I looked at this and went. I, it strikes me as somebody who's simply trying to make a name for himself by saying something controversial. Um, as long as we're talking about Joe Montana here and, and lists and that sort of thing, where do you have Joe Montana in your list, Ron? You know, certainly in the in the in the top ten and probably in the top five. To be honest, you know, you run these United and Brady and and then you kind of filling in from there between Montana and Marino and Elway and Sam Baugh and Otto Graham and. Otto Graham. Great, the great Benny Friedman and uh, Roger Staubach, you know, unless you want to uh, combine play with post-game parties, then it's easily Joe Namath, Ken Stabler, and Brett Favre, hands down. If we, if we, if we factor in the post-game party. How about Dan Pastorini? Yeah, pretty good, except he break his leg, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, Goose, where do you have Montana on your list? Well, top five for sure. Unitas, Graham, Brady, Montana, Elway. Uh, I've got Unitas on top of my list, and you can stack those other four in any order, and I'll be fine with it. Yeah, I, I don't combine them all in one list, to be honest with you. The guys always divide the groups into pre-Super Bowl, post-Super Bowl quarterbacks, and, and I have him right behind Brady, or right, actually right with, but right behind Brady and post-Super Bowl quarterbacks with Unitas and Graham in the pre-Super Bowl group. But, of course, the farther we get away from that era, I'm talking about the pre-Super Bowl group, Goose, the more guys like Unitas, Graham, and Sammy Baugh are forgotten. They just, people don't, they just don't remember them because there's no SPN video of them. Not by me. You know, I think Unitas, Unitas would have had inflated stats if he played in the 2000s, and Brady would have had deflated stats if he played in the 1960s. You, you can't judge quarterbacks over the years by the same statistical measuring stick. It goes back to the eye test. 
my eyes remained focused on Giannis. He was the first quarterback to define swagger. Yeah, and you know what I loved about Unitas and Ron? I, I know you and I uh, feel the same way, and I think Goose does too. A great downfield passer. I mean, if you watch the 58 championship game, you don't even need to watch that. Just watch film of him from the late 50s, early 60s. When he was throwing deep, he was on the money. He wasn't throwing these horizontal passing games. There was nothing like these three-yard long handoffs. He was throwing down the field. I mean, those. he was a great passer, but the thing that to me that gets forgotten and lost with him, he's also a great ball handler. Great ball handler. You couldn't find it. I mean, when he was faking doing play action, you go, "Where's the ball? Oh, he's got it." Yeah, no, no, you're you're exactly right, Joe. And and that's the the problem with a lot of these things. You know, history forgets guys. Uh, you know, I mentioned uh, Benny Friedman, and I'm sure people yeah. say Benny Friedman is he an insurance agent? Uh, well, he's totally forgotten. But in his day, his average production during his time in the NFL was six times that of his nearest peer, if you can call that guy a peer. Uh, you know, because of his passing ability, uh, yeah. while throwing what looked like a watermelon those days, George Hallis said Benny Friedman revolutionized the game. He completed over 50% of his throws in the in the late 20s and uh, uh, early 30s at a time when he, all other quarterbacks were never higher than 35%. Think about that. Yeah, about and what that. about Sammy Baugh? Right? Sure, I mean, you, you exactly right. About Sammy Baugh. There's another guy. I mean, people go, huh, what? No, I Sammy mean, Ball, you, you, he, you're going to pop off about who's the greatest of all time, then you have better have put some effort into finding out who really is the greatest of all time. Right, right. And I think a lot of these lists start with Super Bowl One, unfortunately. Because I, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but I've, I've always thought one of the most overlooked or underappreciated quarterbacks of all time was someone Ron mentioned just earlier, and that was Roger Staubach. That would be friend of the show, Roger Staubach, but that's not why I'm mentioning him here. Now, because of military commitments, he didn't join Dallas until he was 27. He served over in Vietnam, as we mentioned earlier in the show. And then he wins 75% of his starts, goes to four Super Bowls in eight years, wins two of them, becomes a Super Bowl MVP. He seldom hear his name mentioned during the best and brightest at the quarterback position. What's that about? Well, he's sixth on my list. You know, only two quarterbacks have better winning percentage in history, Graham and Brady. He never threw for more than 3,600 yards in the season, never threw more than 25 touchdowns. If you like stats, you're not going to like Staubach. But if you like winning, Staubach is your guy. He made more plays to win games than all but a very small handful of quarterbacks in history. Yeah, he's, he's, he's among the elite easily. Yeah, I agree with that. Hey, Ron, by the way, you have anything you'd like to say in closing to Mr. David Carr? Yeah, I do. Go watch 49 a game film of Bill Walsh's system in 1979 and 80 when the Niners went a combined 8 and 24 without Joe Montana. Then go watch 1981 when they went 13 and 3 with Joe Montana. And then talk to me again about who made what system for whom. Good advice. I think David just flunked the Talk of Fame Network audition. Too bad, too, because I was looking forward to hearing from him. Instead, you're going to hear from U.S. Army General who once played for Gino Marchetti and Alan Mitchie. True story. That's coming up next. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, some of you may recognize our next guest. That'd be retired Army Colonel Kenneth Allard as a former military analyst for MSNBC. Now, others, others might remember him as the former special assistant to the Army Chief of Staff, or maybe professor at West Point in Georgetown, 
or book reviewer for the New York Journal, or mm, senior associate of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's everywhere, but that's not why he's here today. He's here because Hall of Fame defensive end Gino Marchetti, and once upon a time, Colonel Allard's coach, gave him the eye after Ken was thrown out of a youth football game in Towson, Maryland. True story. Now, how many guys can say that? Well, not many, but our next guest can. Colonel Allard, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Uh, last weekend, you wrote a, a very interesting piece uh, in the Baltimore Sun about growing up in Towson, Maryland in the uh, 60s, surrounded, it seems, by members of the Baltimore Colts uh, in a middle-class neighborhood uh, whose Campus Hills Colts were a championship team coached by Gino Marchetti and Alan Amici. Did it strike you how unusual that was when you were 14 years old and those guys were teaching you how to play It football? even did back then. Okay, we knew without any question at all we had to be the luckiest young boys in Baltimore because we had Hall of Famers around us. But it was not unusual because all those guys had off-season jobs because playing in the NFL was the most, most a part-time gig. So all these guys had other jobs. Uh, my favorite was Artie Delaman of the Baltimore Colts owned a liquor store. <laughs> Johnny Unis owned the bowling alley. And uh, Amici, Alan Amici and Gina Marchetti eventually found a burger chain that we now know today as Arby's. It's that same uh, evolution, which seems strange now. It seemed even stranger back then. <laughs> now, uh, I want to get to this game where I understand you got yourself thrown out of the game, and waiting for you on the sidelines was Gino oh, Marchetti, future Hall of Famer, giving you what we call in my neighborhood the stank eye. He was not <laughs> happy with you. <laughs> what happened? Hey, you, you guys got to remember, for one thing, Gino Marchetti was six feet eight inches tall. He was the ha- tallest human being I'd ever seen in my life to that point. Of course, then, by today's football standards, he'd be the little guy someplace. But back then, he was huge. So what happened was that uh, I was getting into it with uh, my opposite number. I was a defensive end, was rushing the quarterback, I was getting through a lot. He started blocking me, doing some dirty stuff. We lined up. He said the wrong thing to me in the wrong exact tone of voice. And so I simply said, okay, we'll do this thing right now. I came up off the ball and flattened him. Uh, the guy told me later it wasn't so much the hit that I gave him. It was funny. I stood over him saying, get up. <laughs> well, the referee saw that and immediately threw me out of the game. So all my passions cooled as soon as I turned around and saw Gino standing there looking at me. And you're right, it was a stink eye. <laughs> <laughs> what, did he, what did he say to you when he got to the sidelines? Well, you got to remember, that was the longest walk of my life from the middle of the field to the sideline. It felt like Bridge of the River Kwai. And Gino's standing there, gets right to my face and says, all right, what happened? I told him. And I added lamely, but it seemed like it was a fair hit. And at that point, he said, look, whatever it was that you did, the ref did not say you're playing fair. You're out of the game. We got a 15-yard penalty, and by the way, you let the team down. Now you go over on the bench and sit and think about that. So I'm heading toward the bench, and guys, it was my mean Joe Green moment. <laughs> because all of a sudden, Marchetti says, hey! I turn around and look back at him, he says, you ought to hear what they call me in the game sometimes. So, there was a great leadership lesson where you take them down and build them back up all the same moment. <laughs> Just out of curiosity, did you wear number 89? No, I did not. I was number 37. Okay. <laughs> okay. Another question. Did, did Johnny Unitas ever stop by to watch? And, and how did you look at those guys? Were they gods or just guys in the neighborhood? They were both. Because, I mean, Johnny Unitas was not only 
would he stop by for practice? Because, you know, Chino Marquette and Alamitra were his pals, and uh, as was uh, uh, Joe Caminola, our, our other coach. And so he would stop by because he enjoyed being with the guys and, and the little guys and loved to talk football. He also owned the bowling alley just over the hill from our, where our practice field was located. And to make a long story short, uh, eventually my dad sold his house in Campus Hills. <laughs> an ordinary real estate transaction with an ordinary uh, two human beings. And it was not a big deal the way it would be uh, in this day and age. When, when, when uh, Spurs players in San Antonio relocate, believe me, it's a huge real estate transaction. The, the earth moves. But back then in Baltimore, Maryland, in a middle-class neighborhood, it was something which happened every day. Wow. Wow. Sorry. And by the way, my you... dad sold real estate with Tom Maddy, <laughs> who used to be the Colts Reserve quarterback with the, with the plays taped to his wrist. <laughs> True story. Hey, um, you saw Gino passed away a couple weeks ago. What did you think when you heard that? Was that basically an end of an era for you? Oh, man. You know, I'm writing a book right now, and by, by a strange coincidence, I was right at that point in the memoirs where I'm talking about how my character was shaped at an early age, uh, by, by both church, by home, by school. And I had to, I said, it was like, all of a sudden, a door opened and said, you gotta, you got to tell the story. And the story that you just talked about is going to be in that book as well. Because it shaped my character. It was one of those lessons you learn long before you come to where it counts, which in my case was the U.S. Army. But back then you learned, hey, if you lose your head in a game or other contest, the guy who loses his head loses everything. Great lesson for leadership in the future. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because the article that Ron referred to, in that, you said that uh, Marchetti mentioned that the discipline he learned as an 18-year-old machine gunner in World War II, and he said that led to his football success. Now, of course, you knew him, you played for him, but you also have that Army experience. You know what that is like, which, to be honest, few players do today. Could you explain now what he meant? Do you know now what he meant when he talked about it, having gone through what you did? Well, I'll tell you something, okay? He, none of us at the time knew that Gino Marchetti had actually not only been in World War II, but he'd been a machine gunner at the Battle of the Bulge. He never mentioned that. We simply, he was, he was, he was sort of like a, a little god himself, so we never questioned him. We would never think about that. But that was what shaped his character. And the thing which amazes me is that later on I had the chance to do the same thing up at West Point, also at the National War College, and you see the characters being shaped and sometimes it takes some very, very uh, elementary lessons like the one I learned that day from Gino. When you talk to people about, hey, listen, you screwed up today. Let me tell you a story about me. <laughs> and it's one of the things which I think is a sense of perspective to rising in leaders, which unfortunately we do not do very much of these days. But I'll tell you what, we, we learned so much from the greatest generation, and we had no idea at the time that Gino was a member of that generation. Let me ask you a leading question, Colonel Allard, but how different do you think your life would be if you hadn't been coached by Gino Marchetti? It seems like you had a, a pretty enormous impact on your on your life and where you went next. I mean, uh, you, the lessons he gave you, the discipline he installed and instilled in you, um, and you went on somewhat of a similar path, but it, it, how would your life have been different if you, you weren't coached by him? If you were coached by Ron, God forbid, or me. <laughs> oh, you know, good I'm, Lord. 
<laughs> well, you know, the funny thing was that it was not just one individual Baltimore Colt. By the time that I left that area back in 1965 and 69, I left in 65 to go to college, 69 to go in the Army. I'd known guys like Don Chinnick, uh, Raymond, um, uh, oh, I can't remember his name, the, the tight end who was so, ev- Raymond Berry. And oh, yeah. those guys would come to our church meetings and stuff like that. They were the kinds of guys you would see all, all the time. And we all understood very well one, one key thing. We're seeing role models for the future. And whether or not you play football, they were a good guy. These were good guys to pattern your life after because we knew what kinds of things they had done on the field. We had no idea, as I said, about Gino playing off the field in the biggest um, in the biggest field of them all. That that battle of the balls in World War Two. I mean, that's legendary. In fact, my wife's father fought there himself, and he was one of only five guys from his battalion to come back. So I explained to my wife, "You're even lucky to be here." But Gino faced those same odds, and one of the things which came out of that for him was an absolute determination. If he ever had the chance. He'd gotten real close to death at least on one occasion. And after that, he said, you know what? Whatever it takes, I'm going to make, a, make something out of my life because I've not been given the second chance. That's a great insight. Now, I mean, how do you sort of compare that experience? To, I mean, obviously, that wouldn't happen today, generally speaking. You're not going Never. to you know, t- the, uh, Tom Brady's house or J.J. Watt's house. Uh, how would you explain the difference of that life then and what life is today for these athletes and for the people who interact with these athletes? Well, you know, one of the things which really got me uh, about writing the articles, I, I probably not in any of my articles have I received that kind of uh, very from-the-heart feedback from people who are my readers. But they saw me out and wrote a number of really moving articles on their own saying, listen, we were a better country back then. And it's kind of, it's kind of different today. It's not just because the athletes are so much wealthier and so much above the rest of us. But there's something else about the society which has changed fundamentally. Uh, in my case, guys, I think it had to do with the draft. Because for a, a lot of years, any of us who were around that same age, we dealt with the Vietnam and the thought of going to fight in the war in different ways in different places and different methods. I mean, some of us resisted. Some of us went along with it. Uh, in my case, <laughs> I raised my right hand and went forward. There was all there was to it. And part of that was the fact that I realized I could not turn my back on what I've been brought up to believe in as far as what this country represents. And a lot of that was guys like Marchetti, the Colts. All those guys had played those, those uh, long before they got to the Colts had done some extraordinary things. And I look at Johnny Knights, for example. He was an absolute nobody in high-top high top black athletic shoes. And comes on out of nowhere, and all of a sudden he can throw a football and outthink the opposition better than anyone. And he realized, wow, those guys were something. In the case of uh, both, I think, Johnny Nice and, and Marchetti, they were shaped by the either West Virginia or Pennsylvania coal fields. In fact, if it hadn't been for football, a lot of those guys would still be in those coal fields or having long since uh, retired from them. But we never heard, we never heard who they were or what they were good at. But they they were shaped in some fundamental ways. And boy, I'll tell you what, they shaped whole generation. Ken, just listening, I can tell how important the Colts were to you and your neighborhood as a kid and in the entire city of Baltimore, for that matter. I'm just curious, how did you take it when the Colts left Baltimore? I hated it. I really did. By that point, I was long since gone, uh, first for college and then for the Army. But when the Colts left Baltimore, 
I was just absolutely stunned. I think everyone back there was, because, by God, they were us. That's who we were. And I, I know the Ravens are a great team, uh, but I've never had the same feeling about them that I ever did about the Indianapolis. I'm sorry about the Baltimore Colts. I refuse to call the team in Indianapolis the Colts. They're simply a different entity. <laughs> And the funny thing is, I was covering that team for the Sun then, and to me, they yep. ripped the soul out of the city when they left. Ripped the soul out of the city. You know, I remember talking to my dad about that whole thing, and I've rarely seen my father get really passionately angry, unless he was talking about me. <laughs> but that was one of those times he get really angry. He said, my God, that was a betrayal. And they, they really didn't feel that way, and in some respects still do. I mean, I remember, here's how far back I go. I remember when Mir Tommy D'Alessandro brought that team to town. And by the way, he had a really hot-looking daughter. Nancy <laughs> D'Alessandro, better known in the history is, who guess? Or guess who? Nancy Pelosi. Right. Right, <laughs> right that's right. Uh, Colonel <laughs> Allard, thank you. People so don't much. realize that there's history here. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. That's right. Um, and thanks so much for the time we're out of it. We, we enjoyed the history lesson, but thoroughly enjoyed the story. Thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Guys, my pleasure. Thank you and God bless. Thank, Thank you. You got it. That was Colonel Kenneth Allard. And this this is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, I can see the finish line up ahead, so guys, you hear that? That means it's time for the two-minute drill. Take it away, Goose Man. Roger Goodell says owners need to be held to a higher standard than players. If so, what does the NFL do with Robert Kraft? Suspend him one season for general awareness of deflated balls. (laughs) Send him to the pokey, man. Speaking of GMs, former GM John Dorsey showed up for Kareem's Hunt's baptism over the weekend. Now that Hunt has faith, should the Browns have faith in him? Only if he's as tough on opponents as he is on women. (laughs) Ouch. Faith, but verify. If Peyton Manning ever decides to run an NFL team, what team will it be? Peyton will never run anything. He'll pass. (laughs) The Colts. Dance with the one that brung you. Patrick Mahomes says he can throw the ball 100 yards in the thin air of Mexico City. How far can Tom Brady throw it in the thin air? have no idea. You know, the last time I checked, Super Bowls aren't played in Mexico City. That depends on how much air is inside the ball. With helium, a mile and three quarters. <laughs> the Bills have given jersey number 32 to journeyman running back Sonoris Perry. Does that officially close the book on the O.J. Simpson era with the Bills? Nope. book never closes on O.J. The juice is always loose. This is another example of why the Bills are the Bills. They have lost their minds. Juice is still the best thing that ever happened to Buffalo. Who does Ron take with his first pick in the 2019 fantasy football draft? Leonard Fournette or Saquon Barkley? Marshawn Lynch. (laughs) I am no fly-by-night fantasy fan. Fournette rules. (laughs) Pete Carroll says the NFL should get rid of instant replay. Does the league office hear whatever said in the NFL buildings 28,000 miles away, 100 miles away? Not unless it involves L.A. and cash revenues. No, they do not, nor do they watch Disney films and hum zippity-doo-dah. What separates Drew Locke from his drafted and failed Denver quarterback and predecessors, Brock Osweiler and Paxton Lynch? He's a lock. They weren't. In Osweiler's case, a lot of money. In Lynch's case, a lot of talent. Larry Fitzgerald, Ella Fitzgerald, or F. Scott Fitzgerald? John Fitzgerald Kennedy. 
Come on, Gooseman, is it real or is it Memorex? Either way, it's Ella. That's the end of the game. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website, www.talkofamenetwork.com, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and on this station. Thanks for listening, and happy Memorial Day.